This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, lots of African Americans don't think of immigration as a Black issue, but a large proportion of people seeking to enter the U.S. come from the African diaspora, and they may be getting the worst treatment of all. And black women with guns have always been willing to confront the enemy with force. But first, President Trump has taken weaponization of the dollar to new levels of financial aggression. U.S. economic sanctions used to mean the United States would not trade with a country targeted by Washington. Now it means the targeted country is forbidden to use dollars, the world's reserve currency. And anybody that spends dollars to trade with the targeted country will also be punished. We spoke with Dr. Anthony Matiro, the Du Boisian scholar based in Philadelphia. Yeah, you're right about the dollar. And the dollar has exorbitant privileges, to use the language of one observer of these things. But what we see is the post-World War II Bretton Woods architecture of the world trading and financial system has been pushed to a limit. Uh, It doesn't begin with Trump. I think that it begins with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then we move into this unipolar world and the uh, dollar becomes more privileged and it becomes, after a point, a weapon in the hands of U.S. policymakers, U.S. hegemons who seek to control every movement away from the dollar towards a, what some call a basket of currencies. Clearly, Trump's use of sanctions have put, I would say, the world financial, monetary, and trading system into crisis, a crisis that will not be won by the West or the United States, but will eventuate in a basket of currencies, nations like China, China and Saudi Arabia, China and Iran, China and Russia, India and China, nations constructing new currencies and new ways of trading without using the dollar. For instance, the petro yuan, that is the currency through which Saudi Arabia and China trade in oil. The same thing with Iran. The United States has put all these sanctions on Iran, but we learned uh, recently that the Chinese government is investing something like $285 billion in the Iranian oil refining and drilling industries. Are they doing it in dollars? No. They're using the yuan or 
the Iranian currency. The same thing with Russia. So we see the U.S. becoming what the Chinese used to call a paper tiger. It can show its fangs, it can show its teeth, but the world is finding new ways of connecting economically and in trade and in financial matters with one another without using the dollar. Now, my last point is that this constitutes a major threat to Europe, not just the United States and the dollar, but how will Europe, for example, Germany or the United Kingdom, Britain, what will be their mode of trade with, let us say, China or Russia? Or take, for example, Italy, which has expressed interest in joining the Chinese-sponsored global infrastructure project called the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Or what about the 16 or 17 European nations which meet annually with China to discuss trade and other relationships? And, you know, Glenn, we have talked about this so many times over the last few years. We are looking at a new architecture, a new mode of international relationships where multipolarity and in some instances, a multipolarity that sidelines the United States, where the United States ultimately is going to have to beg its way back into the new world system. This is huge. It has characteristics of a revolutionary remaking of the world. Yes, and in fact, high-ranking officials in the European economic infrastructure have specifically uh, made reference to finding ways to bypass the dollar, uh, to avoid not just sanctions, but to enter a multipolar world like you described. Yes, and this in particular most immediately is what is going on between that group of European nations that were part of the nuclear agreement with Iran, who are now finding ways outside of the dollar-denominated trading system to trade with Iran. I think this is all very, very important. And as I said before, this is part of, and it's a matter of how we define revolution, but it is a revolutionary remaking of world relationships away from the system that emerged after World War II, the Bretton Woods system, which made the United States the hegemon, the dollar, the dominant currency in world relationships. That is crumbling. A new world is arising. Speaking of old worlds and crumbling, now we in the U.S. are talking about a Green New Deal, which would require a restructuring of manufacturing and, well, just about all the modalities of life, if it is to lead to a really deep reduction in emissions. Well, you see, and this is where we run into a big problem. What, in fact, is the Green New Deal? Is this an attempt to save the planet? Or is it an attempt to save capitalism by greening capitalism? 
Is this in fact what many are calling it and what many are saying it is, or is this an attempt to save capitalism by investing upwards of $100 trillion in the greening of capitalism? I think for most who use that language, it is the latter. It is to save capitalism, not to save the planet. And what we are now in the middle of, I think, is what could be a vast human counter-revolution whereby the world will be dominated from the United States and from Europe, but especially the United States, where the resources and the sovereignty, especially of the nations of Africa, will be determined by the West under the guise that your sovereignty is only meaningful if you accept the terms of the, quote, Green New Deal. Your resources belong to the West in the interest of a Green New Deal. And hence, we have the right, that is, we the West, the Western elites, have a right to undermine your sovereignty if it does not fit into our plan for a Green New Deal. Put another way, our plans to restructure and reboot world capitalism. I think that's what the problem is. I think it's more about saving capitalism and pushing back the nations of Africa and Asia that have achieved independence under the guise of the Green New Deal. Well, certainly, if you put trillions of dollars in the hands of U.S. corporations, and that seems to be the only kind of modus operandi that the U.S. Congress, dominated by capitalists, can Mm -hmm. operate under, certainly that would create a mechanism for capitalist salvation rather than climate salvation. And, of course, the United States has shown itself to be totally capable of converting human rights into a weapon of offensive imperial antagonism. But that doesn't mean that the whole idea of a Green New Deal is some kind of capitalist conspiracy at this stage, does it? Not necessarily, but you have to ask the question, in whose hands is this movement for a Green New Deal? For example, take this vast international coalition of non-governmental organizations and their use of social media and Google and the mainstream media to promote a certain idea and to establish the language and meaning behind certain ideas. The Green New Deal for you and I, and let us say people in certain parts of Africa and Asia, is one thing. But the Green New Deal for these NGOs connected to the Gates Foundation, connected to other philanthropies, and these philanthropies connected to large corporate interests, international corporate interests, is not about the planet, is not about humanity, but it's about saving capitalism, which is in, I would say once again, an existential crisis. And every way we look, we can see it. It does, capitalism no longer grows. I mean, not only in Japan, where they've had zero growth 
for decades, but also in Europe and the United States. A system which cannot reproduce itself has to find a way to attract investment in a way that rebuilds that old, decadent, crumbling, parasitic system. And that's what I'm looking at. You know, and as a social scientist, there are certain indicators of this. For example, take the invention of celebrity and then the fetishization of celebrity. Thus, when we look at this, we see the attack upon critical thought. We saw it with Obama. You could not mention Obama except in praising him if you wanted to be a part of any, quote, legitimate discourse within the black community. That was an invention. Obama was an invention. His existence was celebritized and fetishized. And we see it on and on and on. And all discourse in this period of capitalism is through the celebritization, but it is also this vast global network of NGOs, which one estimate is embraces maybe close to 2 billion people on the planet. And that power, in many respects, is greater than government. And in this situation, in this moment, is being deployed under the idea of a Green New Deal to save capitalism and to enlist in this army, unbeknownst to many of them, young people who think they're fighting for the climate, but are really fighting for a corporate agenda, which is about saving capitalism. And if you save the planet, so be it. You seem to be saying that corporate forces in the U.S. will co-opt the idea of a Green New Deal in order to engineer a public subsidizing of a reworking, retooling of capitalism for the benefit of the rich and then use the idea of a Green New Deal and its benefits to the planet to assert an imperial right to take hold of all of the resources of the world, supposedly to better manage them for green purposes, but actually Mm -hmm. to enhance the power of the capitalist imperialists. I'm not saying can't. I'm saying we're in the process of witnessing that right now. And that goes everything from Greta Thunberg to Ocasio-Cortez to whoever else they want to throw at us. You know, we have to look at this rise of a new kind of leadership of global concerns, if you will. Where did these people come from and who's behind them? And where do they get such freedom to attack the establishment without a serious blowback from the establishment? You know, the 16-year-old girl steps to senators and says to them, you are Betraying my generation, Ocasio Cortez says something very similar. The script is almost the same. But the point is to get these young celebrities and icons and use them as instruments of a new capitalist reorganization, a new rebooting of capitalism. You know, Capitalist economic theorists have always talked about creative destruction, 
they have not been against war because they say war can be a creative destruction. You destroy nations and people and cities and you rebuild them. And that's good for capitalism. And that's what we're looking at, something similar with this Green New Deal. I agree with you. Now, the question is, what does that mean for what is called the global south? What does that mean for Africa? Well, we, you know we got AFRICOM already to manage political processes on the African continent, but now we're going to come with this UN-backed movement to manage the resources and the politics of Africa and Asia and South America in such a way that we are told that they must get in line with the Green New Deal to save the planet, and if they don't, the UN and other international bodies have a right to take over their government and their resources. And if you listen to the language and the kind of hysteria almost, it is specific to the United States and the global North, in particular West Europe. We don't hear the same type of hysterical, we're going to die in 12 years rhetoric in China, in India, in anywhere else but the United States. I am arguing that this is a form of managing the thinking, the psychology of masses of people, in particular young people, infusing them with the language of existential crisis of life and death situation. And we must, in order to save the planet and save our lives, turn everything over to the transnational corporation. Now, what about government? Well, more powerful than government because governments lack legitimacy. The House of Representatives, the Congress, the presidency, the mass media in the United States are in what we call legitimation crises. Well, you create this moral authority of movements that appear to come out of nowhere, appear to be organic to the people. You create celebrities. You create a narrative, a story of how these leaders emerge only with a moral agenda to save the planet, to save their generation. In fact, this is all an invention. How would people in the global south and here in the richer countries counterpose this, what you say is a scheme for capitalist New Deal and present a program that actually does combat global warming, which does exist? Yes, yes, yes. Well, this is what makes it very complicated. We have to fight to save the climate, to save the planet, to save humanity in an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist way. If we are drawn into this, if tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people are drawn into this pro-West, pro-capitalist, quote, Green New Deal, it will lead to disaster. But if we can, in fact, through political education, create an alternative movement. You know, they're talking about green jobs. In California, where we've gone further, so-called, in creating green jobs, there's no way to even tell how many jobs that have been created are green jobs. And then when you add artificial intelligence, robotics, and all of that, automation, first of all, capitalism is making 
over half of the workforce, so let's say in the United States, are necessary, redundant. Now, are green technologies going to bring those jobs back? No. It will be based upon technology and automation that eliminates jobs. I think we are faced with a great struggle. A lot will be dependent upon who can win the battle of ideas over whether or not we can save the planet and save capitalism at the same time. I think the slogan has to be, save the planet and let's do away with capitalism. That was Dr. Anthony Montero speaking from Philadelphia. There has never been a time when U.S. immigration policy has not been shaped by race. Throughout U.S. history, blacks have been unwelcome at U.S. borders unless they arrived in chains. Ben Induga Kabuye is on the staff of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. He says U.S. immigration policy has always been shaped by anti-blackness. That's for sure. I mean, especially if you look at the currently right now in the modern era that we're in, the major immigration legislation that created the immigration system that we have now, we're talking about the crime bills of 94 and 96. These weren't just crime bills. These were also immigration enforcement bills that criminalized immigration at a level that has never been seen before. We're talking about at a time when there was only two or three deportable felonies. They added over 50 mandatory deportable felonies made them retroactive. Immigration detention is, you can be detained as an immigrant indefinitely. Any number of things that just made, created the infrastructure for what we're dealing with today. You saw that in the early 90s with the Clinton Democrats and that liberal wing of the elite power structure. And because of the fundamental anti-blackness of this country, immigrants who are black get treated worse in general than immigrants who are not. Right now, you can see some of our research at the stateofblackimmigrants.com and Baji, B-A-J-I.org, which what we have found is that Black immigrants are 20% of the people who are detained and have a higher level as a product of criminal contact. So what that means is that black immigrants, more than any other group of immigrants, have the highest levels of criminal alien deportation and detention, as in you are deported and detained as a product of criminal conviction. So the criminal justice system, just as we see its disproportionate impact on African Americans, you see that kind of follow up and continue in immigration enforcement on black immigrants as well. And the, really the tragedy is, is the immigrant rights movement for a long time, which you have probably have seen in many ways, has particularly made a point not to talk about mass criminalization, incarceration and policing because they wanted to present themselves as people who can assimilate. But for African, Caribbean, black people from South America, what we have seen is that even if we wanted to, the reality is, is that any time that budgets go out for policing, cages, border patrols, they directly impact our communities at much higher rates. Yes. So black immigrants, even after trying to overcome all the problems that other immigrants face, have to face the fact that they inherit all of the oppressions that black Americans face. That's 100 percent right. And the reality is, I mean, we could even look at this economically. You look at the work of people 
like Patrick Mason and who look at the economic status of black immigrants, what you realize is that black immigrants have the highest unemployment rates, their wealth gap. People kind of are familiar with the wage gap between men and women. So typically you see for every dollar of a white man, women make 30% less. And obviously for black women, it's even much deeper. But the wage gap between white men and black immigrants is you looking at a 40% wage drop between white men and Haitians or African immigrants. It's a huge, huge discrepancy between what people are paid and what they allegedly this meritocracy gives them. And ultimately, what you find that after the first generation or so, much of the economic gains that immigrants typically should get, black immigrants and like other immigrants tend to experience a downturn in their economic well-being. So we usually, when we're building with black immigrants, the number one thing we say is that when they come to this country, they must first learn the history of African-American struggle in this country and then participate in black liberation efforts around economic well-being, around mass criminalization, because the black struggle here is our struggle. And then vice versa, thinking through an, a pan-African lens, that the struggle of Caribbean people, the struggle of African people, Black people in South America, the Griffin community, Central Black Central Americans, that struggle is the struggle of African Americans. And so being united in a pan-African front to push policies and agendas and really self-autonomy and self-determination is what we must all unite on. And even though we may have many different cultures and different ethnicities and often even different languages, we have a shared political destiny. Yes, and this intense and particular discrimination and bias against black immigrants doesn't begin at the U.S. border. In many cases, it begins at the Mexican border. Yeah, that's 100 percent true. We have seen the reality is the migration at the border in the last 10, 20 years has really changed. You know, obviously, President Trump, like Obama and many other presidents before them, was very focused on targeting Mexican immigrants. But the reality is most we have a net zero migration for Mexican immigrants. Most Mexican immigrants are actually returning back to Mexico for any number of reasons that we can go into further detail. But what we have seen is a massive rise in migration for black migrants, black people from the Caribbean and Africa at the U.S. border, U.S. and Mexico border, and also even the Mexico and Guatemalan border, Tapachula, and at levels of thousands of people. And that's because the U.S., the West, and global capitalism has extracted wealth from our home countries, just like it's doing in black neighborhoods here. They've extracted wealth from our home countries, put up leadership that harms our communities, which has forced any number of forms of violence and trauma at, at a community-wide level, leading force to mass migrate. You can think about Haiti as an example. You can think about the Caribbean, broadly speaking. You can think about Central America, the Caribbean community. You can think about African countries, but in Brazil in particular and, and in South America, Black migrants have been moved out to America for employment, to work in the fields, to look for opportunities, and really to look for safety, similar to the great migration here in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. And because the U.S. has continued to extract wealth from those countries, folks have been forced to migrate thousands of miles, and people are moving and walking, literally walking from Brazil, thousands of miles from Brazil, all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border, looking for asylum, looking for support from a country that is at the root cause of why they're forced to migrate in the first place. The latest hurricane wreaked terrible damage in the Bahamas, and Americans expressed sympathy for the plight of Bahamians. But in terms of being able to get relief, some escape into the United States, no go. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And really, the Bahamas in particular is an example of extra, a long history of extracting wealth from that country, using that country as a tourist site, using it as a vacation site, and to little to no benefit of regular people. And then ultimately, when they are in need, there is no support and no help for them. And we've seen visa restrictions. We've seen people coming into Miami and Florida families being separated. And so this is just an ongoing consequence of the crisis of global capitalism. And the weather is not the crisis, but a global capitalism, which causes climate changes, which causes countries not to be able to have the infrastructure to deal with extreme weather. All of these things are rooted in decisions that are made in the West in many ways, and while being resisted by people on the ground, whether we're talking about in the Bahamas and across the Caribbean. Um, I've seen Florida, Florida, and particularly Miami. Black people in Miami and Florida are very familiar with hurricanes and, and the reality of how the U.S. can literally look the other way in the middle of extreme danger, similar to Hurricane Katrina. I mean, recently, when Hurricane Irma and Harvey and any number of hurricanes were hitting Florida, there were no shelters for Black people in Black neighborhoods in Dade County in some of the most hardest-hit areas. And so through a, a effort called We Keep Us Safe, we had to rally support, supporting people on the ground, leaders like Brittany Williams and other organizers on the ground in Miami to live support for people, making sure that they have basic supplies and also pushing the governor to open up shelters so people can be able to be safe because literally as the days before the hurricanes were going to hit last year and then the years prior, people would come to shelters and find out that a shelter that was available before was no longer available. Having a pan-Africanist worldview, it must be especially hurtful to you to see organizations like Eidos, American Descendants of Slaves, which harbors a political animosity, it appears, to all immigrants in this country, including Black immigrants. I mean, yeah, it seems to me and, and, and to many other people that ADOS is actually simply a right-wing, a creation of right-wing funding and support, but doesn't really reflect the traditions of the, of the Black radical tradition in the United States. Um, you can look at any number of their leading members that have either been part of foundations of white nationalist groups funded by them, but ultimately, like, they are a product. I mean, you can think of the xenophobia in South Africa, between South Africans and other African immigrants from migrating. We can look at the Haitians' experience in the Caribbean, the folks' experiences they migrate through Central America. The reality is that this is similar to what Black people have always experienced everywhere they went. And it's actually just a product of the defeat of Pan-African movements. And so whenever our movements that are a concern with the well-being of all of us and are pushing forward an agenda that's, that's beneficial to us all, Whenever the state and global capitalism defeat those movements, what comes out of that then is right-wing ideas and right-wing movements. So it's not a surprise that now we have this agenda that is antithetical to the tradition of the, of the Black radical tradition. Every Black-led movement at its greatest strength became international. We can think of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, the time he spent in Ghana and uniting and speaking with West Africans, Malcolm X's time in Africa. We can talk about his family, where he comes from, but his mother is a Caribbean woman. We can look at uh, Laura Dorca Coffey, like the long tradition of Claudia Jones. Black internationalism has been a, a core part of 
the black struggle here in the United States. And even you can go back to slavery, you look at the work of Gerald Horn, actually, of black Marxist point, who kind of explains literally that the movement of black people across borders and the, well, the fear of it is what literally created the United States and, and what spurred black rebellions across this country, leading to the Civil War, leading to the country that we have now. So black people have always not identified with borders and with nations that were created by white supremacy, but with each other and their family and their kin. I think we have to rebuild that. That's the mission that we're on. These challenges, these xenophobic ideas, they cut across all ethnicities, just like there is currents within Black American culture that have that kind of, that ADOS is tapping into. There's also same xenophobia, well, not xenophobia, but anti-Black American views within immigrant communities. And so we, as part of a coming from a pan-African com- commitment, we challenge those. When we are in African communities, and they are opposed to the African-American struggle, we challenge them uh, <laughs> vigorously. When we're in Caribbean communities, we do the same thing. And then when we're in African communities, African-American communities, we do the same thing. Because reality is that we have a shared political destiny. That united, we are more powerful than our oppressors. And, you know, most of these right-wing campaigns that are being funded by the worst of the worst, they typically, they're not progressive in any way. Like, you can look at their policy agendas and you can say, what is their stance on housing? What is their stance on ignoring immigration? What's their stance on women's rights? What's their stance on LGBT rights? What's their stance on mass criminalization? What's their stance on capitalism? And what you'll find is their views are typical of Republicans. And you can see that in right-wing groups that are Africans or Caribbean people. They see their own countries as tourist destinations and trying to make money off their own people. And obviously you can see that with ADOS as well. What they're coalescing is the Tea Party of Black people. Continuing on the subject of anti-Blackness, even among non-white folks, Black folks in the Dominican Republic seem to have a particularly daunting situation. Many are treated as if they are illegal aliens, even though they were born in the Dominican Republic, as you were, and they must have a horrible time trying to immigrate, let's say, to the United States or anywhere. Yeah, I mean, the Dominican Republic is in many ways, as far as immigration and anti-blackness, it's on the trajectory that where the United States is trying to get to in some ways. And so far as the removal of birthright citizenship and really the partnering of state violence with mob violence to target black people, what Dominicans of Haitian descent, black Dominicans in general, some who have migrated, some who are Dominicans for a much longer time, what typically has happened is that at two particular times in the history of the Dominican Republic, hospitals were not giving birth certificates to black people. Similar just to the U.S. here in, in the South and many other places, people were not being given birth certificates. So when 100 years later, a right-wing regime comes forward and says, or we're checking people's documentation, what you'll find is many people don't have the documentation that says that they're Dominican or they may not have complete documentation. And so this then is used to target migrant workers, also Dominicans of Haitian descent who've been there for nearly a century, or even before that when Haiti helped DR expel the Spaniards and the enslavers. 
our people have always been crossing borders and uniting across borders. And so we have organizations like We Are All Dominicans in the United States here um, have partnered with groups on the ground in many ways to fight and push forward an agenda that's saying we must protect the rights of black people and obviously labor rights as well for sugarcane workers, for many of the Dominican who do a lot of manual labor and work for corporations who are, again, partnering with the West. And, of course, Western U.S. corporations that are very much involved with the removal of birthright citizenship as they benefit off a labor group who is insecure, who is beholden to their employers. I mean, even the Dominican side of the border of DR and Haiti, it's heavily funded by the U.S. military and the U.S. support. And so the border of the United States is being exported around the world. DR and Haiti is one example. But anti-blackness is a core part of who is being targeted, whose citizenship is being removed, whose rights, labor rights are not being respected, and who also is experiencing mob violence on a day-to-day basis. And so folks should definitely look at support Haitian women for Haitian refugees that does work around this and supports many organizations on the ground. Much of this work involves really mutual aid and helping people build up their power, just like we're doing here in many ways in other fights. And then also we're all Dominicans as well around uniting black people, Dominican, Haitian, to say, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment is unacceptable. And it's really hypocritical in many ways because black Dominicans but Dominicans in general, when they come to the United States, also experience some of the highest levels of deportations when they get here. So we must rally the diaspora as well to say the fight here is the same as the fight in DR and in Haiti. That was Ben Induga Kabouye of Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, speaking from New York City. Jasmine Young is a doctoral fellow at the University of California's Department of African American Studies, where she's working on a manuscript titled Black Women with Guns, Armed Resistance in the Black Freedom Struggle. Young says black women have always been represented in black people's armed resistance to the racist powers that be. The idea is that usually men are participants in uprisings, urban uprisings, and the research basically supports that their numbers are probably way higher than women's. Are. But I'm more so interested in the reasons why women are participating in uprisings, if they're similar to men's in terms of police brutality. I've been looking at the 1965 rebellion in Los Angeles, which typically called the Watts Riot. And what I'm seeing from that is that women are involved at, I think it's probably like three to one. And they are you know, they're classified as looters. They're classified as people who are cheering on the crowd who are just as involved in the uprising. And what I'm seeing from the research is that they have their own issues with police brutality, right? Like, so they have police who are harassing them, assuming that they're sex workers, picking them up, trying to coerce them into sexual acts. And and so they have their own specific gendered issues with police brutality. They also have their issues with exploitation from businesses in their neighborhoods, selling them rotten food, selling them food that's highly marked up. And so these are some of the concerns that they're voicing as a result of indirect relation to why they participate in the rebellion. 
Yes, and of course, the Black Panther Party, by many accounts, had more female members than males. Yeah, absolutely. So women are a part of the Panther Party very early on. They, I think Tarika Lewis is her name, is the first member who is a woman. And she comes in and she's like, hey, can I get a gun? So she's just as interested in armed resistance as some of the men who are equally coming into the organization for that reason. And they say, you know, you need to study just like the rest of us. So she goes through political education classes. She learns how to use the weapons properly. And she becomes a very important member of the organization. And so women are packing just like men are packing during the Panther Party's reign. Why would various folks have an interest in downplaying women's participation in armed resistance? That's a great question. There's a couple of answers. One is from the perspective, I think, of women. So you have a lot of women who are practicing armed resistance or believe in armed resistance, but they're not as vocal about it, right? So there's a way in which women may be what they call dissembling from this public view. And that's for protection, right? So like, I think that it's, it's a strategic move to not be as vocal about having weapons or being able to use weapons, especially if your adversary doesn't know that, like that might be a very strategic move to make. So there's that. I think that there's a tendency for scholars to look at and look towards men who are vocal So, you know, there's uh, quite a bit on Malcolm X. There is quite a bit written on Robert F. Williams. Robert F. Williams is in Monroe, North Carolina, and he's quoted as saying, we need to meet violence with violence. And so this is in like 1959 or so. And so the media takes these things up and they run with it. And so armed resistance gets coupled with manhood and masculinity in these very particular ways. I think the other thing is that some scholars, especially scholars of Black women, have been reluctant to tell this story or tell this history because Black women have kind of fallen outside of the preview of traditional womanhood or the cult of true womanhood. And so there's a way in which scholars, I think, kind of take up some forms of the politics of trying to paint them as respectable. And that's understandable, given the amount of scholarship that has demonized Black women, has marginalized Black women, and and attempted to paint them as less than women. Your scholarship has had a particular focus on Gloria Richardson, who was the leader of Black organizing in Cambridge, Maryland in the 60s, during a period of lots of organizing and some armed resistance. Yeah, Gloria Richardson is an interesting figure in Cambridge. She's becomes the leader of the Cambridge nonviolent action movement in 1962. And the movement in Cambridge is fascinating because, one, they are focused very much on economic changes in their community. The levels of unemployment in Cambridge were quite high. People lived in homes without bathrooms and running water. And so they had very serious issues. They weren't really interested in public accommodations. They were more so interested in housing and economic concerns. And so Richardson starts off by kind of taking a survey of the people in the community to see what their needs were, to see what their desires were, to see what their issues were. 
And after they take the survey, they kind of create a agenda. And I think that that's an important kind of key strategy that I think we can use today, right? Like let's assess what's really going on with the people and then kind of craft an agenda from there. And then what she does is she, she goes through the traditional channels of petitioning the commissioner, the city council and coming up with a couple of plans, talking to the business owners who weren't hiring black folks, but really white segregationists, as they typically do, were very gun ho on maintaining segregation and they did so Silently, and the black community was armed and they were ready and willing to fight back. And so there's a couple of nights in which white folks are driving through town, shooting indiscriminately out the window and, and black folks are shooting back. One reporter kind of likens it to the wild, wild west. And he says that the shooting went on for over an hour and the smell of gunpowder was in the air. And so this ends up being a really big issue because Richardson I think is expected by her colleagues, by her contemporary civil rights leaders to admonish the community. And she never does. She never castigates black armed self-defense. In fact, she, she very much says that this is a practical response to white violence. And she sees the direct relationship between black folks being willing to arm themselves and practice armed resistance and the way in which the federal government intervenes. She ends up being called into Washington several times to talk with the attorneys there to try to come to some kind of resolve. And at some point, she and several others sit with the attorney general at the time, which is Robert F. Kennedy, to hash out some kind of plan. And so she's a very special leader at this particular moment in time, primarily because she's a woman. She's single. She's divorced. She's a single mom. She's in her 40s. Or so, and she has this position on armed resistance. And at the time in 62, 63, I think probably the only other activist who has a national spotlight who's having the same kind of position is Malcolm X. So she very much becomes in line with Malcolm X in 63, in November of 63. Now, people shouldn't be surprised that Black folks used the tactic of armed resistance. Most Black folks in the South were armed. Black communities were armed. Black households were armed. And Black women, disproportionately, head households. So what's so surprising? Yeah, no, people shouldn't be surprised that Black people were armed. Part of what's happened in the last 50 plus years is that the emphasis on nonviolence in our public imagination has skyrocketed, right? And so we see the civil rights movement as a nonviolent movement. We think of Malcolm as Martin Luther King, as Rosa Parks as these crusaders for nonviolence. And Martin certainly is. Martin talks about his experience of kind of coming to a solid commitment to nonviolence as a philosophy and not just a tactic or a strategy. But early on in Montgomery, he has armed guards right? Like he goes and applies for a gun license. And so he takes a journey to get to nonviolence. Rosa Parks, on the other hand, is again remembered as this tired old woman, and she was neither old nor tired as we remember her. She was an activist and had been an activist for a very long time, and she also was very much committed to self-defense. And she believed that not only she had a right to defend herself, but Black folks in general had a right to defend themselves. 
And as you mentioned, yes, Black people have had guns. We come from a Southern culture, many of us, in which gun culture is very strong. Black folks had guns to hunt and to shoot, but also to protect themselves. So on one hand, it's not surprising. On another hand, it's a story that hasn't fully been told. And part of what I'm interested in is the ways in which Black folks are negotiating who should be the protector of the community, who should be protecting the homes. And a lot of the research that I've looked at and what I found is that Black women are protecting the home. They're protecting their children who are out on the marches and participating in demonstrations. They're protecting fellow activists. And so it's in some ways hidden in plain sight that women are armed and that Black folks are armed. And yes, Gloria Richardson came from the eastern shore of Maryland. That's Harriet Tubman country. And Harriet Tubman was definitely armed. Very much so. And Gloria talks about that lineage, right? That activist lineage that she comes from. Harriet Tubman certainly was born within that same area and used her weapons to A, free herself and then free several others and then lead a raid at the Kambahi River. And so there is a long history of women practicing armed resistance for freedom and to achieve full freedom in the United States. Now, just to remain on Gloria Richardson for a second, she didn't consider herself a feminist. She never uses the term and, and I talk about that. So there's quite a few women of her generation, of her age, who don't use the term feminist. And what I see is these are women who are concerned with issues that impact women and impact the lives of people that these women care about and are concerned with. And so I think that the term has been tainted, certainly. There's a whole body of literature on why some women embrace this term and why they don't. But we can really look at what, what's happening with the ideology and then what's happening on the ground in terms of the way that they're living their lives and the approaches they're taking to activism. Now, the great journalist and organizer Ida B. Wells, she didn't have a problem with armed self-defense either, but left Memphis essentially because the white folks outgunned black folks there. Yes, I, so I talk about Ida B. Wells. She's a fascinating activist who's also very much committed to armed resistance. Ida has a story in which a friend of hers is murdered and lynched, and she recognizes the way that the newspapers tell the story about this lynching. And she writes this scathing critique of white journalists, of white mobs and, and of lynching and the interactions between black men and white women. For that, the mob comes to pay her a visit and she happens to not be in Memphis at the time. So she ends up having to leave Memphis or never return to Memphis rather. What's interesting is, as Ida very clearly says, you know, the way to stop lynching is for there to be a Winchester rifle in every black home. And she publishes this. And this is something that is dispersed throughout the United States with Black people being able to either read it or hear someone else read it. Uh, She also tells Black folks to go West. And so, you know, this is the beginnings of a movement of Black women forming clubs and organizations. And she wasn't alone in this idea of armed resistance. And she, very importantly, and this is the beautiful thing about Ida, she talks about armed resistance in a philosophical way, right? So that even if white people are 
outnumbering black people in armed resistance. You don't die on your knees. You die standing up and you die shooting back, right? And so she kind of invokes this idea that we hear Claude McKay talk about in 1919. And so this is the idea that you fight back. And even if you die, you don't die like a dog. What kind of reaction are you getting in terms of encouragement or resistance for your emphasis on Black women and their involvement with armed resistance? I get a couple of different reactions. There's a resistance to thinking about women also wanting to be protectors. I think that there may be for some people the idea that men should be the protectors and that if women are protectors and that somehow negates masculinity or, or negates manhood. And then I get the women who are like, yeah, duh, absolutely. Like, of course, I'm going to protect my children. Of course, I'm going to protect my home. Of course, I'm going to protect my body. And we learn in some ways to protect ourselves, right? Even to this day, I, I often talk when I'm, I'm lecturing or giving talks, I'll ask people like, how many of you have ever walked down the street with a key in your hand? And so I think it's important first that I should say that I define armed resistance very broadly. You don't always have to be armed with a gun. You can be armed with anything that can protect you or anything that can serve to curtail someone who is trying to assault you. And so many times I'm seeing women who are armed with guns, with sticks. Sometimes they're setting fire to people's homes. So there's several ways in which I see throughout history Black women being armed and using that as a tool towards freedom and towards full freedom. I'm also seeing the reaction of people very excited about the history being told and very excited about the implications of the research. And this is essentially not really about weapons and tools, but about power relationships in the Black community and in families. Absolutely. It's definitely about power relations. Again, just questions about who has the right to defend the community, whose job should it be, and what should that look like with intra-racially. There's definitely those kinds of conversations happening. There's also conversations that women are involved in in organizations like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as they begin to debate more fully the issues with nonviolence and the pushback that they are receiving when they go into these communities. You know, they end up changing their name from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to the Student National Coordinating Committee. But then you're also, of course, the power dynamics of Black women pushing against the state and state representatives. And so police, marshals, the National Guard, and the use of force that these entities are using against Black folks. Could it be that this subject of Black women in armed resistance is ripe for discussion, possibly because there isn't much armed resistance to speak of today in the United States, in Black America? I wouldn't say it's right, although that would be perhaps ideal. But I do think that what we're seeing on a national level are white supremacists wreaking havoc and doing so with a level of impunity that should direct to us that Black folks need to prepare themselves to defend themselves. White people are emboldened at this moment in time. White supremacists are able to go into all these different public spaces and, and they're killing people. 
And so I think that it would behoove us to entertain the conversation in that regard. Yeah. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 